Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Uh, Would you do me a favor? Uh, Would you stand with me? Uh, If you are able, please stand. We're going to read from God's Word just out of respect for God's Word. Uh, Would you stand? If you can't stand, that's okay. Put your heart, put your mind uh, in submission and under the authority of the Spirit. Uh, We're going to read today from John 12, verse 20 through 36. Uh, The Gospel of John says, uh, Some Greeks who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration paid a visit to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. They said, Sir, we want to meet Jesus. Philip told Andrew about it, and they went together to ask Jesus. This is what Jesus said, said. Now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for this life, uh, for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to be my disciple must follow me because my servants must be where I am and the Father will, will honor anyone who serves me. Now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But this is the very reason I came. So Father, bring glory to your name. Then a voice spoke from heaven saying, I have already brought glory to my name and I will do so again. When the crowd heard the voice, some thought it was thunder while others declared an angel had spoken to them. Then Jesus told them, the voice was for your benefit, not mine. The time for judging this world has come when Satan, the ruler of this world will be cast out. And when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. He said this to indicate how he was going to die. The crowd responded, we understand from Scripture that the Messiah would live forever. How can you say the Son of Man will die? Just who is this Son of Man anyway? Jesus replied, my light will shine for you just a little longer. Walk in the light while you can, so the darkness will not overtake you. Those who walk in the darkness cannot see where they are going. Put your trust in the light while there is still time. Then you'll become children of the light. After saying these things, Jesus went away was hidden from them. Word of the Lord, you can be seated. Thanks be to God for every last word of his word. All right. Well, uh, we are in week seven of our Advent series, Finding Peace in an Anxious World. Did you know that technically Advent does not uh, end until Epiphany, which is January 6th? Uh, So I decided two days ago... um, without discussing with our communications team, that I was just gonna tack this one on to the end of the sermon series we just did uh, because I think it fits as an appropriate conclusion to all of it. Uh, Now, next week, we're gonna start a new series where we walk verse by verse through the book of uh, Galatians. Uh, It's gonna be great. We're gonna start next week, week one, with a Bible study weekend, uh, something that we've come to know and love over the past year. We're gonna study Galatians. It's gonna be a long form 
you know, scribe, tribe, all the things. So be here, come prepared for that. And then we're going to spend three months all the way to Easter walking verse by verse through that book. Um, I'll go ahead and tell you, this week, we're going to read through Galatians in preparation for that. So you can throw the slide up there. If you are not on our Bible reading plan together as a church, over 1,500 people in our church are doing this together. Then right now, we're going to leave this lower third up for a minute. I'm encouraging you, text Bible to that number right there. You'll get on the plan, and every morning, you'll get a small devo from one of our staff and the, and the, uh, the reading for, for the day. This will get you through the, the letter of Galatians by next Sunday when we study. Now, back to this series. The goal of the series has been pretty simple. Uh, we want to equip you with the truths and resources of a spiritual nature that we believe that you need in order to get through a holiday season that can just be full of all sorts of anxiety. I'll say it one last time until next year. There is nothing you can do to make December magical, nothing. You can jingle all the bells. You can have the elf on the shelf or you can put the shelf on the elf, praise God. Uh, you can get the popcorn tins with three different flavors in it, love those. You can decorate Christmas cookies that look like snowmen. You can drive all over the planet to attend all five family Christmas parties. And that still won't make December 25th magical. Historians believe that Jesus was born sometime in the month of September. So if you're putting redemptive pressure on December 25th, I promise you, that day's not gonna live up to it. Even if you had a great Christmas, I had a great Christmas. Me and Lindsay enjoyed this week. And even if you enjoy this week, guess what? Your boss expects you to come back to work. Maybe some of you are back already for the rest of you. You gotta go back tomorrow. I'm sorry. Some of you are still waiting for Amazon to deliver those final presents. I'm so sorry. Others of you, your wife has already taken down the decorations, so there's no more lights, no more wreaths, no more happiness, just cold. <laughs> I'm so, so sorry. Really, the only thing you have left to do this Christmas is, uh, I don't know, pay off your credit card. <laughs> Happy New Year. So, one more time, let us remember, the only thing that makes this season truly magical is if what we believe is actually true. If like a seed, the son of man was buried into the darkness of the ground so that a harvest of new life, children of the light could burst forth to the glory of the father's name. If that's true, okay, Merry Christmas. And yes, this season does have something to offer our anxious world indeed. So uh, here's where we've been through over the last seven weeks. Uh, week one. Uh, we talked about how if you want peace in an anxious world, you got to choose hope over despair. Week two, we talked about choosing confession over concealment. Week three, perseverance over fragility. Week four, local presence over omnipresence. Week five, doctrine over desire. Last week on Christmas Eve, we talked about choosing Jesus over everything. And today, to close, I want to encourage you to choose self-denial. This is one of the keys to finding peace in our crazy world, choosing self-denial over self-fulfillment. And I just wanna shoot straight with you from the start. My goal today is if you have never been baptized before, I want you to respond to this series by choosing to get baptized. I do, but we'll get to that in short. Now, if you know me, you know I like to read. So uh, I've been looking at like my books of the year uh, list of, at, at, the, at the end of this year. And, uh, and one of my books of the year is this book written by John Mark Comer. We got the, got the cover of it here. Um, it's a book called Live No Lies, buy it read it. It's a great book. 
Uh, in the book, uh, Comer argues that our culture actually disciples us in half-truths, lies. And what happens is when we believe them, well, that is what steals our peace. We live in an unreality. So that's what actually wreaks havoc on our emotional health. That's what strains our relationships. That's what exhausts our bodies. That's what undermines our spiritual well-being. Now, y'all see that hand in the back? Go ahead. Tyler, um, I feel all those things, the exhaustion and the you know, anxiety and all that. I get that. But, but these lies, what are they? What are they specifically? Well, I would encourage you with this. There are a lot of them. Sometimes it's hard to know this from that. Many of these lies are very obvious, especially when we see them in others. Many of these lies are in you, so they're conveniently invisible. In our politically polarized time, uh, it's interesting. Uh, you, you can watch as, uh, as each side finds it so easy to see the lies that the other side believes. But when you ask them to look in the mirror and critique their own platform or their own politician, or their own ethical vision, well, they can never see anything wrong with themselves. Uh, but many of these lies go beyond politics. You know this. In the New York Times, uh, a columnist named David Brooks, uh, loved most of his stuff, he identified five lies that we believe in a, in a 2019 column. Here they are, I don't know if these will resonate with you or not. Uh, number one, he says, uh, career success will fulfill me. That's lie number one. It's built into our culture, but, but it's a lie. This is the lie that happiness is earned when you work yourself to the bone. So we always have more ambition, but we never have enough contentment. You see? And by the way, we talked about this a few weeks ago. We're actually foisting this lie onto our young people, aren't we? Mm. The achievement anxiety so many of them are suffering from. And like we're saying to middle schoolers now, uh, hey, I need you to take these classes seriously so when you get to freshman year, you can take a full load of APs so that you can get into that college, so you can get that internship, so you can get that job, so that someday you can get a vacation house on the lake and really live this thing called life. But it starts now in the sixth grade. No wonder many of them struggle. Lie number two, uh, Brooks says uh, is this, I can make myself happy. I can make myself happy. This is the lie of self-sufficiency. And we all know it's a lie because all you gotta do is ask somebody on their deathbed what mattered to them in life. Person after person as they're reflecting on their life will tell you it's the thick loving relationships that they had that mattered. Nobody ever says, I regret not working more. Everybody always says, I regret not spending more time with loved ones. Lie number three is freedom is the absence of restraint. We've talked about this. True freedom isn't the absence of all restrictions. It's actually the presence of good restrictions, a good rule, a good authority. Lie number four is you, you, uh, uh, you have to make your own truth. Again, we talked about this one a couple weeks ago. Uh, there is such a thing as reality. Some truths are better than others. It just is what it is. Some moral systems raise up kids better create healthier lives and build more functional communities. And then line number five is, oh, and this one's kind of brash. Line number five is, uh, is that rich and successful people are worth more than poor and less successful people. Now, again, this was very direct by Brooks, uh, but I agree, it is so true. No one would ever say it out loud, but B Brooks points to the fact that our, uh, our meritocracy 
in the United States of America is built on the idea that you are worth what you can produce. Now, I could go on. I just thought these five lies were good examples. They're true. They're lies. And these lies are baked into everything. They're baked into politics. They're baked into media. They're baked into entertainment. They're monetized at work. They're normalized through fad phrases. And we're constantly ingesting them via this digital IV we call our smartphones. And when we believe these lies, they destroy us. Uh, Comer writes this, uh, and it's pretty extreme language. He says, so how do we fight the war for our souls in a secular age that claims we don't have one? This is his solution. He says, well, we die. We have to die. And then we live. Extreme language, right? But believe it or not, this is Jesus's language. And today, as we sit on the cusp of 2024, a new year full of new challenges and new possibilities, I wanna invite you to live, but first you gotta die. Now, I don't know uh, if you've noticed, but every single one of the lies our culture, I mean, we could put the list of five back up, but every one of the lies that our culture tells us, they're all united around a common pursuit. It's the pursuit of self-fulfillment self-fulfillment. And the differentiator here is that Jesus doesn't teach self-fulfillment. He teaches us self-denial. Did you see it in the passage that we just read? So uh, in the passage we just read, Jesus begins by describing his death and resurrection. 12, 23, it says, Jesus replied, uh, now the time has come for the son of man to enter into his glory. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and what's that word there? dies, it remains alone, but its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new, what's that word there? Lives, right? So Jesus describes his cross-shaped sacrifice as a kernel of wheat that is sown into the ground and then brings forth a rich harvest. You see, death and life. The time has come for him to die, to be planted into the darkness of the earth so that we might have resurrection life today. Now, by the way, this troubles Jesus. I don't know if you noticed that. He's 100% human. He knows this is gonna hurt. So this is what he says, 1227. He says, my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray? Father, save me from this hour. But then he says this. He says, this is the very reason I came. So Father, bring glory to your name. Now, in these two passages, Jesus actually reveals uh, to us uh, what I would, would call the two motivators for his cross. Did you see him? Two motivators. Uh, the first one is this, the salvation of humanity, the salvation of humanity, a plentiful harvest of new lives. That's what he's after. And the second one is this, the glory of the Father. He says, Father, bring glory to your name. In short, this is yet another example of Jesus practicing what he preaches and living out his two great commandments. What were Jesus' two great commands that were the summation of all others? To love God and to love neighbor. Love God, love others. And show sure enough, this is what he calls his disciples to. 1225, Jesus says, those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must Follow me because my servants must be where I am and the Father will honor anyone who serves me. 
So if you want to live, you got to die like Jesus. You got to walk the way of the cross and give your life to God and others. Are you following the argument here? Okay, so Peter articulates it very, very clearly in one verse, 1 Peter 2, 21. This is a good summary for you. Peter says, for God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example. You must follow in his steps. All right, now quick thought experiment for you. Quick thought experiment. I want you to pretend with me, just pretend uh, that human beings are actually hardwired to experience peace, joy, meaning in life to the extent and, uh, and, and degree that we deny ourselves for the sake of others. Just pretend that. And on the flip side, we actually experience a lack of peace or a lack of joy or a lack of meaning in life to the extent that we indulge ourselves at the expense of others. Let's just pretend for a second. You get peace, joy, and meaning when you're self-sacrificial. You don't when you're not. Now, let me ask you, if that was like this underwriting truth of life, what would you expect our culture to be like right now? Full of peace or lacking in peace? Hmm. 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 At a societal level, would you expect us to have the peace that comes from like neighbor love and selflessness? Or would you expect us to be divided, mean, always offended, greedy, and never content? Hmm. At a societal level, would you expect us to have the joy that comes from self-giving? Or would you expect us to be anxious, depressed, and despairing? Hmm. At a societal level, would you expect us to have the meaning that comes from a purpose bigger than ourselves? Or would you expect us to be disillusioned, burnt out, empty, bored, and hooked on unhealthy self-medicating addictions? You see, I know Jesus is 2,000 years old, but it seems he diagnosed our modern sickness years ago. He says it all even more plainly in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Jesus says, uh, if any of you wants to be my follower, you, you've read this passage before, you must give up your own way, take up your, what's that word? Cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Word of the Lord. Uh, so over Christmas, um, I met another, um, another young man. I, he I hear this actually quite a lot. I met an another young man who, who, whose mindset when it comes to Jesus went something like this. He's like, hey, man, I, I, don't, I don't believe Jesus is like God or whatever. You know, but, uh, but I really do think that he's a great person and a great teacher. Now, I love the sentiments, and I think that's a start in a relationship with Jesus. But when I talk to folks like that, I always like to point out, well, first, what do you do with his teachings that claim divinity? Like, you just ignore those because those are part of his teachings too. Uh, but second, also, his teachings are completely at odds with everything our culture stands for today on like every level. He would not be celebrated as a great teacher if he was here saying the things that he did. Is there anything that will get you mobbed faster than telling people to deny themselves today? I know, trust me, no. No, there's nothing. 
Like, we all like to pretend that if Jesus were around, uh, he'd be on our side. He'd have the same bumper stickers. He'd post about the same issues. He'd vote the same way for sure. And he'd totally agree with all of our views, right? But really, if Jesus were around, he'd just be telling us to deny ourselves. Like if he were here today, he would be telling us that your money is not yours. You keep too much of it for yourself. Your responsibilities to the poor. So quit being greedy and deny yourself. Woo! Fire emoji times 10, right? If he were here, he would be telling us that when it comes to sexuality, uh-oh, all we care about is feeding our desires. That's it. We don't care about who we are harming or exploiting or objectifying. We don't care about the procreative power of it. We don't care about the holy boundaries that God put on it to protect us and build families and grow community. It is all self-fulfillment, no self-denial. If he were here, he would be telling us that the love commandments trump the first amendment and the second amendment and any other man-made law. He'd be telling us that our politics are idolatrous, violent, and oftentimes irrational. If he were here, he'd be telling us to turn the other cheek, pray for those who persecute us, to be overcomers rather than victims, peacemakers rather than haters, to choose self-denial over self-protection and self-aggrandizement. If he were here today, the religious and political mobs would crucify him just like they did 2,000 years ago. Would you be a part of the mob? Comer writes in his book, uh, he says, we look back on the Crusades uh, and legend has it that before they went into, the, into battle, the Knights Templar uh, would get baptized. And as they were baptized, they would hold their swords above their head out of the water. As if to say to Jesus, you can have all of me except for this, except for my violence, except for my quest for glory. Now, legend or history that image in my mind is piercing because we all do this. We might not hold a sword up out the water. For us, it could be a debit card, a relationship, an addiction, a sexual sin, a wound, an entertainment habit, a political savior, or even a theological position. It could be anything. But how often do we say to Jesus, oh no, everything but this? Coma writes, to say yes to Jesus' invitation is to say no to a thousand other things. It's a thousand teeny deaths that all lead to one massive life. Now look, uh, I know this all sounds pretty intense. You're like, Tyler, I thought it was a baptism sermon. It is. <laughs> it is. You gotta count the cost, right? I know it sounds intense, but it's good. It actually blows my mind that some people think that they're living the good life right now. Like some of y'all in here, you've, you've settled for far less than best. I'm your pastor, I love you. So I'm, I'm just gotta tell you, you've settled for the like shallow meh of a, of a sort of kind of pretty decent life. But you don't know how much better your life could be under the Lordship of Jesus. You've accepted something less than best. You're pretending to be free. Again, if we check you out on the gram, you got an Insta-worthy life. Like you're always working and doing big things and saying funny stuff and giving sage advice. Your kids are so pretty and your skin is so perfect and your arms look good in that shirt and you went to some cool Christmas parties where they served cocktails that put a little pine branch in the top of it. So it's seasonal, you know, like you're living a dream on the outside, but on the inside you're in chains. 
and they're heavy. So let me give you a little insight on the, on the evil forces, okay? I'm gonna give you a little, little, little lesson on how to be a demon. You ready? This is how to demon 101, okay? I believe this is the truth. One of the most effective ways to keep people blind of their need to God is to allow their lives to be pretty good. Not too good, not too bad, just pretty good. That's the evil little secret. Don't let people hit rock bottom because when they hit rock bottom, they got nowhere to turn but God. And don't let people achieve their dreams because when you achieve your dream, what you realize is that living the dream ain't as dreamy as you thought it was. Give them just enough, just enough to where they have enough, but always want a little more. So many of us are living in that captivity right now. Friends, I'm telling you today, until you come to trust that God's way and God's way alone is the best way, your life will be less than best. It's extraordinary to entrust yourself into the hands of a God who created you, who knows you better than you know you, who loves you more than you love you, and who wants to guide you on the path to freedom and flourishing. But look, but look, you have to die to the way of life that you know in order to experience this new life. Now, baptism, uh, this death then life process is launched in a very specific way, according to scriptures. You pronounce in public, I'm ready to die. Romans chapter six, verse two, Paul describes baptism in this way. He says, have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ in baptism, we joined him in his, what's that word? Death. Paul explicitly connects death to sin with the decision to be baptized, you see? Because Paul sees baptism as a once in a life decision that takes you back 2000 years to the climactic moment in human history where Jesus died for us. And it allows you to participate in it. Romans 6, 4, Paul says, for we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. So basically when you're immersed underneath the water in some sort of supernatural grace-soaked way, the old self dies, the slavery to sin dies, the chains are broken, they're buried in a watery grave, and then you're pulled up out that grave as a new person. Amen. Romans 6, 4. Paul says, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we may also live new lives. You participate not just in the crucifixion of Jesus, but the resurrection of Jesus. You're risen, reborn, a new individual with a new identity, new DNA, new self, new motivation, incorporated into a new family. What else is there in the Christian journey that is quite like baptism? I've never understood why people resist it. I don't know, it's not really necessary. Why would you, why wouldn't you want to, to, to join in on this? Romans 5, 6, Paul says, since we have been, or 6, 5, he says, since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We're no longer slaves to sin. Wow. So let me get technical with you and then we're gonna do some baptisms. Uh, you've seen this uh, chart before. This is an adaptation of what I call the Engel scale of evangelism. Let that le live up there for a second. I, I use it often. It basically shows the path of how people come to Jesus. Now, what I believe is that most people start in that second one on the bottom. Most people, start, they're born open to the spiritual realm. You don't start closed off to God. You, you're born open. To, have you ever been around a kid before? They're filled with wonder and this belief in magic and the transcendent. Like if I can get my kids to put down their screens for five minutes, five minutes later, every chair, every blanket and every pillow downstairs is somehow built into a fort. And it's like, dad, dad bring us snacks. We're gonna live here. 
You know, it's like, okay, you know, which is great, right? But like, my point is, is that it actually takes someone teaching you, teaching you that there is no God or a bad religious experience for you to fall to the bottom, closed off to God. Most people start with an openness to the spiritual realm. And then over time, you move your way up. It's how people convert. You become aware of the gospel. There really are smart, happy, normal people who believe Jesus rose from the dead. And then you become aware of Jesus' claims to be God and, and to forgive sins and his teachings about love and generosity and compassion and, and trust. And they make sense and they start to seem good to you. And so you become positively disposed towards it. You have a positive attitude, you see. You start watching sermons or maybe attending church or, or reading the Bible or hanging out with Christian people you think have something that you don't. A lot of times you can actually uh, put the chart back up there. You can actually stay in that spot for a while. That positive attitude. You sort of live there. Positively disposed without any sense of your personal brokenness. You may even start to apply some of Jesus' more palatable teachings to your life. But eventually, if you hang around good Christians or a good church long enough, you are going to be confronted with the fact that Jesus was not just a nice moral teacher and it's not gonna be enough to sort of buffet line his teachings. He came to save sinners, you're one of them. You'll be confronted with your personal sin and your desperate need for a power and authority bigger, smarter, and better than you to save your life. Now, what I've observed is that even then, even then, people will get to a personal sin acknowledgement and even then they'll just stay there. Usually, by the way, life pushes them to this personal sin acknowledgement. They have a major moral failure, so they can't deny it anymore. Or they suffer from this debilitating addiction. Or, you know, there's a transition season in life where they feel out of control. Or all of a sudden, you're confronted with your own mortality. And it shakes you up. And you realize, I'm broken, and I have sin, and I'm not immortal. But even then, some people will just stay there and sit in their pain. They're too prideful to admit in front of everyone that they need Jesus. So they settle for a sort of half-baked private faith that doesn't deliver real results and they're never healed of their pain. Or maybe they're just too concerned about their public image and so I can't come down front and like, like get the baptism. Then everybody will know that, that something's going on in my life, you know? There's people that I work with here at this church, which is such a misunderstanding of the way the church is. Like you realize saying you're a sinner in a healthy church doesn't make you different, it makes you normal. Others fall on the opposite side of the spectrum and it isn't pride, it's shame that keeps them from going forward. They think that they gotta keep what they did in the dark because it's just unforgivable so they come to church and cry every week and suffer in silence. Look, I do not know where you're at today, but hear me out. Your sorta decent, mad kind of life is not worth holding on to. And it doesn't need to just be tweaked a little with some aggressive New Year's resolutions. Your way of life needs to die. It needs to be put to death. And when you do, I promise you will gain infinitely more than you lose. So back to the scale one more time, give it to me. If you find yourself here at a personal sin acknowledgement, well, the next two steps go together. You need to decide to act. I'm not gonna stay where I am any longer. And then you need to decide to die and you need to get baptized. So here's what we're gonna do right now. We're going to witness 10 of our new brothers and sisters in Christ who have made this decision. We're gonna celebrate that. 
I'm gonna come up here and offer a brief invitation for anyone who needs to answer the call today, and then we're gonna sing to Jesus this new year. For those of you who have experienced baptism, we're gonna sing of his grace. For those of you who haven't, you're gonna get a time to reflect about him and, ref- and count the cost, truly count the cost. And then I believe today that there will be even more lives, even more lives surrendered to his. So right now, if you will, let's turn our attention over to, uh, over to the baptistry. Let's get this thing started.